Galatians 6, 1 to 3. Let's pray and then we will dive into the goodness of God's word. Dear Lord, we invite you here into this place tonight. We ask that you be with us by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you pour your spirit out upon us. God, we ask that when people look at our lives, they would glorify you because they see you in and through us. And that is our deepest desire. God, help us to grow and help us to learn from the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 6, 1 to 3, this is called Holy Grail. All right. Let's read it, and then we'll talk about it, and then hopefully Jesus does his thing and, like, something happens on the inside, right? Galatians 6, starting in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And that's it. That's the whole text for this night. Uh, Now here's what happened. I was like, we're getting toward the end of Galatians, and I was like, I might be able to just teach the whole chapter 6. And I was looking at it, I was like, I could totally teach the whole chapter 6. And then I was reading it, and I was like, nope, maybe I'll do like half of chapter 6. And then I read it a little more, and then I was like, nope, maybe I'll do a quarter of a chapter 6. And then I read it some more, and I was like, doing the first three verses, that's it. But these three verses of Galatians 6 are so intense and there's just like so much juicy meat in there that man oh my gosh the holy spirit's going to do something okay now here's what we usually do usually we study the bible and we go okay verse one verse two verse three right and we're going to do that tonight but then we're going to go okay verse one verse two verse three and then we're going to go verse 3, verse 2, verse 1. So it's going to come full circle, all right? There's going to be an arc to it. So here's what's going on. First, we're going to go through the verses and say, okay, what's happening here? What's Paul saying? And then we're going to go backwards and figure it out. Rewind. Rewind. Whoop, 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 whoop. Slow-mo. All right? Starts off like this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, which means to say sin, if anyone is caught in any sin, and now all of a sudden, when I hear that word caught, especially if we're talking about it in relation to sin, I imagine like some sin catchers being out there, and anytime they see a sin, they catch it, you know, like gotcha, right? (laughs) And it sounds funny, but that's kind of what people do sometimes, right? There's like sin catchers running around, and all they're trying to do is pounce on the sin, right? As if they, by pouncing on the sin and catching it and going, aha, I got you, they've caught the sin and they've done their due diligence as a part of the body of Christ. So when... 
Paul says, if there's anyone caught in a transgression, is that what he's talking about? Is he talking about sin catchers running around like they're chasing rabbits or something and they're trying to get them all back in the pen? Is that what Paul's talking about? Is he talking about sin management, sin catching? Like, I caught you. I don't know. But then he says in light of that, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that's key. So when it says spiritual, which that word spiritual, believe it or not, doesn't show up a whole lot in the Bible. Right? Not in the, New, not in the Old Testament doesn't show up. It shows up a couple few times in the New Testament. It's kind of weird, right? You think, oh, spiritual. It's got to be all over the place. It really isn't. But when it says, you who are spiritual, it's talking about you who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we just spent this whole chapter before this, chapter 5, talking about the Holy Spirit, what he does, how he fills you, the fruit in your life, and all this stuff. So you who are spiritual, and also in addition to that, um, I think it's implying not you who are spiritually immature, but you who are spiritually mature. You who are filled with the Spirit, and it's a good, positive, mature filling of the Spirit. What you need to do is to restore that person, the one caught in any transgression, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now we learned in the last chapter that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, right? And what Paul is saying here is that somebody filled with the Holy Spirit, what they are to do is you see someone in sin in the body of Christ. This isn't talking about people outside the body of Christ. It's talking about people inside the body. They're caught in a transgression. Somebody who is filled up with the Holy Spirit and bearing the fruits of the Spirit, one of which is gentleness, is to go and approach that person caught in the sin and to address their sin in the spirit of gentleness. And his words that he uses right here, so important. The purpose of going to the person caught in sin in a spirit of gentleness is to, one word, restore them. The reason we approach, the reason we call the sin what it is, and the reason we go to them is to restore them. If it's for any other purpose, we are in sin in the way we're handling it. Does that make sense? So verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Right? So we're talking about this fault-finding way, sin-catching way of going about addressing sin in the body of Christ. Now what Paul doesn't seem to be saying here, even though he uses the word caught, he doesn't mean it like that. He's not talking about fault finding. This is what is really easy to do. You see a sin. I mean, we're all pretty aware of when sin is happening, right? Whether we like to talk about it or not. We all have a sense of like right and wrong, sense of justice inside of us. Um, and when we sense sin around us, uh, we react to it in various different ways. 
And what we're, according to Paul in this passage, not to be doing is not to be fault-finding. Okay, one, here's one obvious thing. Sin is wrong, right? Here's what we are not to be doing with that obvious fact. This is wrong, therefore we start looking around like who's at fault, right? Something wrong happens and people start pointing fingers. What Paul is saying is that pointing fingers, the finger pointing game, the blame game, the fault finding game, this is not helpful and this is not how we are to address sin in the body of Christ. Because fault finding and finger pointing and trying to nail it on someone and then finally you nail it on them and they go, huh, what? Not me. And they make excuses and they turn it back on you and then they, and then you've got two people pointing lots of fingers at each other and then other people get involved and they've got their posse behind them and they're all sitting there, two sides of the, of the fence and they're pointing at each other. Like that sounds like a destructive way to handle sin in the body of Christ, right? So we're not fault finding. We're not blame pointing. And we're not, although this is probably like our default mode, the default mode is to say, who's wrong? You're wrong for doing this. Well, you're wrong for pointing out that it's wrong. Well, you're wrong in the way that you handled it. Well, you're wrong because you didn't love that person. Well, you know what I mean? It just goes back and forth. See, fault finding never solves sin. Never does. And fault finding never restores a brother. What he brings up in verse 2 is bearing burdens. He says, you who are spiritual, go up to that person and restore them in the spirit of gentleness. And so in doing that, you can bear your brother's burden. And anytime I hear that, anytime I've read that, anytime I've heard that, I get this image of my head of somebody limping like they have a burden or they have a struggle. And somebody... This would be the person who is spiritual, coming in the spirit of gentleness, not asking for anything, not expecting anything, not with any strings attached, and not with any, like, care or concern for whether or not they get recognized. The person in the spirit of gentleness, maybe without even being asked, walking up and coming up under that person's arm. You know, like when you help somebody because they have an injury or something? Coming up under that person's arm and not imposing and not fault-finding and not saying what's wrong, who's doing this, but just in the spirit of gentleness, coming up under the arm to bear the weight or bear the burden of whatever is going on. And it doesn't even matter what's going on. Sometimes we get so wrapped around the axle about what is going on, and we forget our purpose in such situations where somebody is caught in sin. And we're talking about bearing one another's burden, and sometimes we, I mean, it sounds good in theory, but when we start to put it into practice and we start thinking about 
us being the one who's coming up in the spirit of gentleness. And if we get caught in that fault-finding mode, if we get caught in the default mode, we start to think of this whole situation as unfair. Why should I have to care for somebody else's stuff when life is already heavy enough and I've got my own burdens? Why should I come restore this person? Why should I bear their burdens? Why should I put their arm on my shoulder and carry more weight than I already have because I have a hard enough time bearing my weight? Well, here's the thing. The question is, can you drink another's cup? Can you drink another's cup? And a cup in the Bible is used to symbolize pain and suffering. Right? You remember Jesus praying in Gethsemane? He's there. He's laboring in prayer. It's so intense. He's sweating drops of blood, right? And you get the impression that he's been at this for a while, this prayer. But the Bible doesn't record too many words he's saying. But you get the sense that there's this havoc being wreaked inside of him. And because of the havoc on the inside, the stuff happening with his heart and his spirit, he is laboring in prayer to the point where not many words come out. But sweat drops that our blood comes out of his pores. Right? That's how intense this is. Like the battle's happening internally, and he's fighting this with his spirit on his knees. And the only words that really come out are, Father, let this cup pass from me. And what it means is the cup of God's wrath. Let the cup of your wrath pass from me. Let the cup of suffering pass from me. Let the cross, in other words, pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And this is what he prays. It's all about the cup. And he is in anguish over the weight of somebody else's cup. This is not his cup. He did not earn this cup. He did not deserve God's wrath. This is someone else's cup. And he is so laboring in prayer because he, was, he will need to, in the coming hours, bear someone else's burdens. And it will be heavy. And he will be drinking the cup of God's wrath that he didn't deserve. He will bear suffering that is not his own in the name of drinking another's cup. Verse 3 says this, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. <clears throat> Another word for that is conceit. When you think you're something and you're nothing. And conceit, according to this, is a deception. When you are filled with conceit, 
Paul says, you've deceived yourself. Now let's talk about conceit for just a second. Conceit is founded in fear. Conceit stems from deep fears about who you are as a person. And there's two ways that conceit can show up in somebody's life. One is probably the one that first pops in her head, which is overconfidence. Right? Somebody's conceited, they're full of themselves, and they're overconfident, right? Uh, we would maybe call this arrogance or something like that. Now, someone who's conceited and they're overconfident, not having the correct view of themselves, having a false view of themselves and not a true view of themselves, someone conceited in the overconfident sort of way will think themselves better than the people around them. Yet the conceited person will live in such a way that they are constantly comparing themselves with fear in the back of their minds to the people around them just to make sure that they are still on top. And that's where they find their identity, from knowing that they are on top of better than or winning in the competition against others. And this is where the source of their confidence comes from. By the constant comparison to the people around them by which they can say, I am better than you. And then the way that they act is, I am better than you. And then the people around them get annoyed because of the way that they act in this conceited overconfidence, right? Now, another way that conceit can show up, and this is still founded in fear, and this is still a false view of the self, is disdain for yourself. In other words, hating yourself. Having a super low view of yourself. This can be just as conceited as the overconfident conceit. The disdainful conceit still does the comparison game. Still finds its value from how it compares to the others around, except this version of conceit looks at everybody else and says, I'm losing. I'm a victim. Everybody else is better than me. Can you see how that's still founded in fear? Because of fear of how much better everybody else is, we get the, the disdainful version of, the, of conceit. Now, working through this backwards, right? One, two, three. Three, two, one. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In light of what Paul is saying here, if you're conceited, what are you to do? In light of everything that we've read in Galatians before this, the last five chapters, he spent this whole time correcting the Galatians, calling them foolish for believing another gospel, like 
telling about the Holy Spirit, telling them what life in the Spirit looks like, telling them what life without the Spirit looks like, and saying, this is what life in the Spirit looks like for you, so what I need you to do right now in light of everything I just said for these past five chapters, which they didn't have chapters back then, but don't worry about that. In light of everything I've just said, apply the gospel to yourself. Apply the gospel to yourself. And when you apply the gospel to yourself, you no longer have a false image of yourself founded in fear that leads to conceit. When you apply the gospel to yourself, you develop a true image of yourself founded in the truth of God's word that is not founded in fear, it's founded in faith, and it leads not to conceit, not to overconfidence, not to self-hatred, but somewhere right in the middle. It leads to and and a really healthy in the middle. Those are two unhealthy extremes, right? A really healthy in the middle. It leads to a bold humility. A bold humility that derives from applying the gospel to ourselves and living out of our true image looks like, a lot like Jesus. Hey, go figure. Where there is no motivation of fear driving our actions. See now, a bold humility is still very strong. Right? Some people don't want to appear overly self-confident. So they shy away from the strength and they become weak. This is a false view of the self. And this is not applying the gospel and finding a true image of ourselves. This is still conceited. However, applying the gospel to ourself, becoming who God says we are, turns into this bold humility that is both meek not weak, meek and strong. It does not have to prove its strength. Its strength comes from the Lord. It's not trying to impress anybody. It is confident in the fact that it is pleasing to the Lord. Now, this bold humility is still confident, but it's not conceited confidence. It is a confidence founded on faith rather than fear, founded on faith in the gospel applied to ourselves. And it is a confidence found in Jesus, not in the strength that we possess. This bold humility is still strong. It can still be confident. It does not have to back down from spiritual battles. And it does not have to back down from approaching these people caught in sin. 
If we are conceited, it's hard to approach somebody in sin. If we're conceited, there are two ways that sin typically gets handled, right? One is the quick criticism. The quick criticism, right? Now, a quick criticism would never want to bear someone's burdens. All it wants to do is run in, point out what's wrong, and run away. This is totally unhealthy. This is totally not helpful. And this does not build up the body of Christ. Anybody can point out what's wrong. Anybody can criticize. That's not a special gift. (laughs) Right? And because of the high view of self... Why would I stoop down and bear somebody else's burdens? They're just, they're dumb and they're an idiot and they need to get their lives together. How it is. So, quick criticism. Or overbearing judgment. Kind of like this constant presence of you aren't good enough, you aren't measuring up, you're messing everything up, you, this is what's, everything that's wrong with you, and that's all I can tell you. And I would not bear your burdens if my life depended on it. So you just need to get your act together. All right, both of these are found in conceit. Neither of them is willing to bear a brother's burdens. However, all right, moving backwards to verse 2, he says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ. When we bear another's burdens... When we let go of conceit, when we apply the gospel to ourselves, when we live out of our true image, when we come along somebody in a helpful way to tell them what's wrong, not running from the fact that there's something wrong, but with this bold humility saying, there's something totally wrong here. See, the, comp- the conceited person will say there's something totally wrong and run away. The person with bold humility, bearing another's burdens, living out of their true image, founded in faith and all these things, will walk up to a person with bold humility, utter confidence, and say, this is what's wrong in your life. And there's no bending softening the truth. There's no saying, oh, it's okay for you. Um, Living this way points directly at what it is. And living this way actually confronts what is wrong. It does not pretend it's not there. It does not put its head in the sand. It does not smile when it's not a real smile. Like if I smile, it'll go away, right? Bold humility confronts and says, this is what's wrong. Let me help you with that. 
And when you do that, when you say exactly what sin is, and when you bear that sin with a person, and when you drink from another's cup of suffering, even though that suffering does not belong to you, you fulfill the law of Christ. And Christ said the whole law is summed up in one word. What is it? What? <laughs> the whole law is summed up in one word. It's love. <laughs> the whole law is summed up in love. And if you fulfill the law of Christ, if you're walking in love, then you can walk up to somebody and because you love them so much, you say, that's wrong and that's not good when you do that with your life. And not run away and not head for the hills and not do the quick criticism, but say, in love, Okay, man, that's wrong. You can't do that. That's not a good way to live. That's foolish. That's whatever it is. And I will stay here and I will help you with it to restore you. And in a year from now, we better not be dealing with the same problem that we're dealing with right now. Because if you and I are bearing this burden through the power of the Holy Spirit, if I'm going to drink from your cup of suffering, we're going to get better. Not you're going to get better. We're going to get better. Does that make sense? And now there's a question that we have to ask when it comes to fulfilling the law of Christ. There's a question that we all have to answer. We'll answer it at some point in our life. We can choose now or later. What is more valuable in this world, in this life? What is more valuable? Is it power or is it love? Is it more valuable to have power over somebody and to be able to control their actions and to be able to make them bend their knee and to make them do whatever you want them to do that's power is it more important and more valuable to have power or to have love see because there's this crazy thing about love power can't touch love Power shuts down love. God, when he created us, and he created us to be in love with us, he gave us the ability to choose to love him. And with that, also the ability to choose not to love him. Right? Because the second you force love, it's not love. The second you make someone love, they're not loving. 
somebody has to choose to love without being forced in order for them to genuinely love. So many relationships, friendships, marriages, you name it, are established on power. I need this done, so I need to manipulate you, say what I need to say, do what I need to do, twist some kind of arm to get you to do what I need you to do. Say the majority of relationships, friendships, marriages, etc. Founded on power. Who's making who do what at this moment in time? And so much of this book of Galatians saying, stop. Power comes from the flesh. You can fabricate flower power. Not flower. You can fabricate power and flowers, maybe. You can fabricate foul. I can't. I give up. You can fabricate power by just trying harder. You cannot fabricate love. And you can never make someone love you. And God never makes us love him. But Jesus said the whole law is summed up in this. That you love one another. Not that you're better than one another. Not that you're powerful. That you're more skilled. That you have better gifts and talents and not that your clothes are nicer, not that you're better at sports, not that you're better in school, you're smarter. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about laying that stuff down in order to truly love one another. And that's how we deal with sin. We can never overpower sin. So stop trying. Sin is only conquered through love. And love is what compelled Jesus to spill his blood to conquer sin. Sin is only conquered by love. So if we see a brother caught in a transgression, how do we handle it? love lastly here we go verse 1 again brothers if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness what is the purpose of addressing sin in the body of Christ the purpose is to restore the body. The purpose is to make the body work again. If I handle it in a self-centered, conceited, prideful way, I'm doing it to make myself look better, probably. That's why I'm addressing this sin. So that people get their eyes off my sin and pay more attention to your sin and I can feel better about myself and I can be conceited. 
the purpose of addressing sin in the body of Christ is to restore the body to make it function the way it's supposed to function. It's to put back the broken pieces. It's to put all the pieces of the puzzle exactly where they're supposed to go so that when you step back, the picture is perfect. The purpose of addressing sin in the body of Christ is to restore the body back to the image of Jesus. And when we do this, we are able to live like brothers. And I use that as a broad term. I mean brothers and sisters. We're able to live like brothers. We're able to dwell in brotherhood. Right? Brotherhood is a bond that goes deeper than any companionship. I mean, there's other deeper connections as well, but brotherhood is so unique. People go to the ends of the earth for their brother. When we do all this stuff that Paul is saying, we can live in brotherhood. We can look out for one another. I'm not pointing out your sins to make you look bad. I'm pointing out your sins because you're my brother and I'm going to help you with that. And we're going to get through this. And we're going to go through the trenches together. And maybe some of this is like, why should we even do this? This is unfair. Why do I have to bury, carry someone else's burdens? Why do I have to forgive? Why do I have to be so patient? This is going to take so much patience. Are you kidding me? I don't have this much time on my hands. Right? Well, then the way that we start looking at this is the restoration of relationships. We start looking at this with hopeful abandon. If we're still operating in fear, we're going to find every single problem that is wrong in this situation and with that person and with this thing and with my time and with my busyness and I have 10,000 other things to do. If we look at this with hopeful abandon that is founded on faith, we go, hey, I don't have to be able to be big enough to handle this. Jesus has it. He wants them to be restored much more than I do. He wants them to be rid of their sin much more than I do. And when we live with hopeful abandon, wouldn't that be a good place to live? In a community of people filled with hopeful abandon? And if we're doing this all as we are commanded to, we will develop communion with the Lord and with each other. We develop connections. We will strengthen relationships. We will form into a family. And you know, when Jesus instituted communion and he was at the Last Supper, he took a cup and he broke some bread, says, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And here's a cup. 
And it was filled with wine. He says, this is my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you shall in remembrance of me. Communion. Connect. Restore. Now here's where it is. Remember the question, can you drink another's cup? Can you drink the suffering of another to restore them? If we look at that with fearful, hopeless eyes, we say, that is, no, I can't, I won't. That's too much burden on me. I just want to worry about me, myself, and I, and nobody else. Well, if we look at that cup as a burden, it'll remain a burden. And yeah, the cup is weight-bearing a little bit. It does have a little bit of gravity to it. However, in an old like folklore and stuff like that in the like the tales of king arthur there was a special cup and it was called the holy grail and this is connected in ancient like english and celtic literature to the the stories of king arthur but then it's also connected and tied in with christ and some say the Holy Grail is the cup that he passed around at the communion, the very first communion, at his last supper with his disciples. The cup that he passed around and instituted the communion. That cup is the Holy Grail. And it's out there hiding somewhere and somebody's got to find it. And they'll find the Holy Grail. And this is the cup that Jesus drank from, right? And there's something significant to it. Is it It's related to that. Um, and this is a big, huge, mythical, like, piece of, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. And if we stop looking at bearing one another's burdens and addressing and dealing with another's sins as drinking the cup in, oh, Father, let this cup pass from me, right? If we stop seeing it like that and we start seeing that cup through Jesus' eyes, that cup transforms into the Holy Grail. You see, it's all about perspective. That same cup that he drank, the cup of God's wrath and the suffering that belonged to someone else, actually, to you and me, that same cup that he drank, that he said, oh, this is going to hurt God, let this pass for me, but whatever, your will. That same cup is what restored us to himself and allowed us to be with him for eternity. And when we drink of that same cup for someone else, if we focus on the burden, it will always be a burden. If we focus on the restoration, 
that cup will be a holy grail that can connect us and make this relationship work and be restored and have peace like it never did before. That's how Paul says to deal with sin. And that's how he says to treat each other. And that's what we're called to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do pray that we would see this as a holy grail, that we would see it as a way to connect with others, to restore a fallen brother, to reconnect. God, we feel the weight of all of this, and God, we ask for your strength because we're not big enough, strong enough. God, we ask by faith that you would give us a bold humility to call the truth what it is, but to at the same time walk in love. God, rid us of this conceit and this false view of ourselves. God, let us move past the immature fault-finding and let us move into bearing one another's burdens. Let us be spiritual and let us learn how to gently restore each other. God, we lift this up in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.